This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You are listening to The Cable. It is Friday, Friday the 10th of February. The Friday bit's important there. Uh, I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele uh, over in New York. Uh, Alex, today we are seeing equity markets under a little bit of pressure. European equity markets tracking lower. Uh, We're down by, let's call it, circa half of 1%, maybe a little bit more. We've had a down week as well. Uh, Energy stocks have done well this week. Uh, Technology stocks, some of the travel leisure stocks, maybe not so much. No, travel and leisure. Guy's going on vacation. That's why he's so psyched it's Friday. Um, here in the U.S., I have to say, we got that UMICH number. It looked better than expected, and it looked like you were going to have equities make a little run for the upside, but they just didn't hold it. Now we're kind of waffling. Obviously, the big events next week's Tuesday CPI, but I think positioning is really important. Retail versus the institutional, I think that's going to be kind of interesting as well. It is. We're going to talk all about this throughout the show. We need to talk about UK GDP. We also had a conversation uh, with the investment minister a little bit earlier on. We'll bring you some of the highlights uh, from that conversation. Let's get the headlines, first of all. Histy Bradford. Good evening, Guy. Negotiations to end rail strikes have jumped the tracks. The UK's Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers rejected settlement offers from network rail and train operating companies. The union, in an emailed statement to Bloomberg, says the proposals do not meet members' expectations on pay, job security or working conditions. The group representing train operators says it made a best and final offer last month. The UK's trade deficit with the European Union widened to a record £32.9 billion last quarter. According to official data, exports to the EU fell 6.1%, while imports from the bloc surged 7.5%. Generosity in droves for earthquake survivors in Turkey and Syria. In appeals by the Disasters Emergency Committee broadcast on TV last night racked up nearly £30 million in donations from the British public. The UK government pitched in an additional £5 million. The twin earthquakes early Monday killed more than 21,000 people. Guy, back to you. Steve, thank you very much indeed. Steve, we're back in around half an hour to keep us updated on what we need to know. So today we've had, as we just heard, trade data. We've also had GDP data. Uh, the UK narrowly avoiding uh, a recession, i.e. back-to-back contractions. Uh, we've also had the UK government today out announcing that it's going to have uh, another investment summit later this year in October. Now, what was interesting about today's GDP data was actually the revisions on the, the, the investment data they were actually fairly good, up to 4.8% and surprisingly strong. We spoke um, to the investment minister, Lord Johnson, Dominic Johnson, uh, on the back of that announcement that we're going to see this summit later on this year. And we talked a little bit in that that conversation about the fact that actually tax rates in the UK are going to be rising. Corporation tax in particular is going to be going higher and whether or not that would be a headwind for further investment gains. The Conservative government is a low-tax government, and we had our investment council meeting this morning with 40-odd um, key investors in the UK domestically and internationally, and, and, and the Prime Minister and Chancellor reiterated our commitment to ultimately having a low-tax and a sensible regulatory regime. If you look at corporation tax rates, actually, on average, even after the raise, they're still lower than the average of the G7. I think they're the lowest in the G7. 
the investment minister, Lord Johnson, uh, speaking to us a little bit earlier on. Joining us now in the studio from our economics team is Philip Aldrich. Philip, actually, let's just let's just start with the investment story coming out of the GDP numbers today. Generally, the GDP numbers today were fairly downbeat. We avoided a recession, but certainly there was a strong signal for stagnation. But the investment numbers actually looked quite significantly better. Why? Yeah, the. They're back at pre-pandemic levels, which was um, you know, we, we've been we've been lagging behind them for quite a while. Um, the, I, I, I can't give you a simple answer of right. why why, uh, why investment has bounced back in the in, in the latest quarter. There doesn't seem to be. Um, a, you know, there has been a little bit of underlying sort of better outlook for the UK among businesses. You see it in the optimism data is all bad, but they're the actual on the on the ground. Then they, they have been putting a bit of. Um, uh, money behind their, you know, uh, their ambitions um, in in these uh, business mm-hmm. surveys. So it's not just been the, so. It, there's a bit bit of a disconnect actually. The sort of sentiment in the UK is really bad, but yeah. the actions have not really reflected so, so that. Basically, this was this was a kind of a good example of that today. So individual companies potentially are are looking at their own businesses and saying actually we're doing okay. They then look at the headlines that you and I and other people bring them, and it's like all oh, doom and gloom. The macro situation's kind of n- not very good. So actually, maybe they're actually focusing on, on what they're seeing in reality on the ground. Is, is that a reasonable explanation? So, so a couple of things which are happening is obviously the inflation impact is falling away. The input prices, which have been a really bad news um, for the past year, have, are, are improving again. Their early signs that inflation is, is dropping back. And so businesses are beginning to think, you know, there is a, there is a better prospect coming ahead at some point in the future because consumer spending will recover as, you know, inflation drops away. We've got a forecast for zero inflation in 2024 and we've got negative inflation expected yeah. in 2025 mm-hmm. and that's the official forecasters. So if you're a business, you've got a two-year planning, you know, uh, <coughs> sort of uh, uh, oversight. So you're, you're planning uh, to sell your stuff in a couple of years' time after you've made that investment. And so I guess they've got to start investing now if they actually see any any future. But you've got to remember that the business investment is climbing from an extraordinarily low yep. level. It's been it's been de- depressed for, for, for three years. And we have really, well, since Brexit, it's been depressed. And we haven't really got back to a level at which you'd, we'd sense, give any, any hope that you know, we're in strong territory. But I have to say, are we underestimating the strength of the UK economy? I get it. I get that the outlook that looks really grim, but yet, are we underestimating some underlying strength here? So at least the base won't be as bad as we thought. Yeah, there's so the the other stuff which is more promising in the data, the GDP data today. Um, so the overall picture was that we avoided a recession. We got 0% growth, so hooray, we got zero. Um, but uh, uh, th- there is a con- there was figures on consumer spending which were also up slightly. Um, wages have been growing obviously extraordinarily quickly. Um, uh, there's there was. A- the big sort of shock, the economic shock, was all on the public sector, really. So there's yeah. a public sector where you saw you saw sort of a, com- a contraction. The private sector, you saw an offsetting uh, improvement. Um, and you know, within that, there was big spending on you know people wanting to go on holiday. People people have got money to spend. They don't have as much as they would have, but there is money still being spent. So you know, the outlook is still grim. But you could you know you you can chart a path towards something. More hopeful. Um, Does more you know, hopeful exclude a recession? I, yeah, more hopeful can it can exclude a recession. I I I'm I'm not convinced. I mean, we had Hugh Pill uh, earlier this week saying, you know, the forecast is for a recession, but the 
general picture that you've got to take away is that we're going to be bumping along around zero. Yeah. So, right. you know, we'll, it's not a great outlook, it's, but it doesn't have to be something, it doesn't have to be dismal. And, and businesses and consumers do seem to have a little bit more optimism. Than, it feels like, though, the problem is that there's, there's no extra catalyst. Like Guy was also talking to the investment um, treasurer, minister, minister about the IRA uh, here in the US, the Inflation Reduction Act. Like, there's no catalyst, even if things aren't terrible, what's like the next bump up for growth? Well, this flummoxed him. There, there, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, this, this is this is this is what's going to be in the the budget." That's what we're, that's what everyone is waiting for in now. Is what is Jeremy Hunt? What's Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt going to unveil on March the fifteenth? That is going to make businesses believe that there is some kind of growth agenda, and all the noise is that we don't have any money. We don't have any money. Um, they are going to have to find some money, and they're going to have to provide some kind of tax relief, as Dominic Johnson was. You know, referring to they're going to need there's going to have to be some kind of capital allowance increase. People are going to have to get uh, incentivized to invest, and that's and that is where you know the the hope for a more accelerated growth uh, profile comes from. We'll leave it there. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much indeed for stopping by. Bloomberg's Philip Aldrich uh, joining us on what is happening with the UK economy. Up next. A tough day for Adidas, or Adidas, as they would say it's on the other side of the Atlantic. They have something of an inventory problem. Uh, it relates back to the Yeezy products uh, and the ending of the relationship with Yee, Kanye West. Uh, we'll talk about that next. We're going to go to Berlin for the details on that story. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Adidas, which, I, by the way, I'm saying that now. When I hear Adidas, I think it's weird. Adidas uh, shares closed down about 11% uh, over in Germany. Um, they fell the, the most since about March 2020. It is dealing with an inventory problem after its dispute uh, with a former rapper Yee. So, what does it do? I'm mean, looking at a 700 million euro loss potentially operating loss this year. Let's get more here with Oliver Cook. Uh, he joins us now. Um, I, I'm, what I'm most shocked about is how much of a surprise this was. So yeah, so Alex, it's remarkable the impact that a single partnership can have on Adidas. And so we knew it was going to be bad, but as the price action suggests, and you alluded to today, we didn't know how bad. So Adidas was calling this before they dissolved this relationship back in October the most successful partnership in the industry's history. Um, and that obviously ended in October. And the revenue cost would be 1.2 billion euros of lost sales this year. But the even bigger problem is profit. This is a very high margin product here. According to analysts, the Yeezy line accounted for about half of Adidas's total profit. And these relationships are really the magic for Adidas. Yeah. Um, and it has other partners like Beyonce and the Ivy Park brand. But the Wall Street Journal overnight saying that sales from that brand last year fell 50%. So it's not guaranteed even for a star like Beyonce. Can I just say that, that Ollie Wentz right across the sort of the range there. We had Adidas, we had Adidas, we had something in the middle. I'm just going to point that out. Well, he, you know, I mean, he's I very transatlantic. You're from the US and you lived in London. I mean, there's a lot of things happening. He's in Berlin now. It's all know. it's all conflating clearly. Um, so, what does this look like? Is it just like a big pile of shoes somewhere? Uh, I would imagine so. I mean, they have to figure out what they're going to do with this inventory, if they can resell it and in what form. You know, that's not, I, I don't think, an easy problem to solve. If you take a step back, this is the fourth profit warning since July. 
and this would be the first operating loss in over three decades if the year doesn't go well. They've got this new CEO in uh, who took over in January who had a pretty sober appraisal of the situation. The statement last night, he said, we need to put the pieces back together again, and we need some time to do it. So, you know, he's preparing investors for a long road ahead. This is a CEO who has a history of front-loading bad news and kind of building in a little bit of breathing room. He comes from Puma. He spent 10 years there. He managed to double sales in, a, in that period of time. He did the same thing at Pandora in terms of laying the groundwork for kind of a long struggle. You know, but he also signed some deals with Man, uh, Man City and Arsenal uh, while he was over at Puma. So it may be a long road, but it should be an interesting one at least. So does that Puma, mean that this was Puma, a, Puma, 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 Puma. No, I can't get on board with that one. It's got to be Puma. I'm I'm with you, Ollie. Um, A question. Is this then the kitchen sink quarter? Like, when's the the worst going to hit? Well, I think that that is sort of, you know, if you think about tactics, so he came in in January, and so, you know, if you want to front load all of the bad news, I mean, listen, this is, I don't have a CFA, but I was doing a little back-of-the-envelope uh, calculation. They said that this could cost them $500 million or euros in operating profit. They also put out the operating profit number for last year, which was just under $700 million. So that's about 75% if you overlay that. Hmm. Um, obviously, that's not a, you know, highly clinical and, uh, you know, financial analysis of the situation, but it shows the scale of how much they're anticipating this could cost them. So, so where next? Um, how, does, how long does this process take to unfold? When are we going to get some clarity on what actually the reality is? Again, I mean, I think we don't know how long it's going to take for them. I think that, you know, the analysts are sort of punishing the stock today. But as I say, you know, he he sort of laid the groundwork. I think it actually gives him a little bit more breathing room. If he was saying, oh, you know, things aren't as bad as as they appear, you know, and try to talk it up a little bit, then he might not Mm -hmm. get as much runway to kind of turn this brand around. And again, it's also like finding these relationships is a very difficult thing to do. Again, the thing with Beyonce is it shows how this does not always work every single time. So when you have a cash cow like this that just goes like overnight, evaporates, it's going to cost you a lot. Yeah, I'm surprised that the Beyonce thing wasn't doing better. Alex is, yeah. Can I, can I just point out that Alex has a budget at the moment? I blame Guy Johnson for that. Yeah, I, honestly, I, I, I'm fully invested in this whole space. It's, it's, it's you are really no, he thing. actually legitimately is. Two boys will do that to you. No, so I, I, so I, so I buy trainers, sneakers on on a fairly regular basis because my children's feet grow fairly rapidly. Mm-hmm. They, they don't spend a great deal on those trainers so uh, maybe the overall number is fairly high but the individual item price is fairly low they go through a lot of things in the johnson household no there's no let me be very clear on that that is the case ollie as ever great stuff thank you very much indeed this is bloomberg this is the cable with guy johnson and alex Steele on bloomberg radio Welcome back. So the question that Alex and I have been asking today is, do we need to reprice Russia risk? And there have been two catalysts for this today that have really sparked this conversation. The first one was a decision by Russia to cut its oil output by 500,000 barrels a day. That's going to start next month. This obviously follows through uh, on a threat that has been made basically to retaliate against Western energy sanctions. We can debate whether or not This is actually just a repackaging exercise. We'll do that in just a moment. The second one was the fact that we've seen a huge attack on Ukraine overnight once again, uh, and that there was the possibility, though subsequently denied, that a couple of the cruise missiles flew across NATO territory, just kind of flagging once again 
the, the escalation risk that does exist around this conflict, particularly in the light of all expectation that we are now going to see a significant push over the next few weeks by Russian forces. So we need to debate Russian risk. Have we got too used to it? Do we need to put it back on the table as we are about to see uh, this next assault? Dr. Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic uh, Council Eurasia Centre, joins us now to discuss all of this. Dr. Cohen, how are you thinking about this? Over the last few weeks, other things have distracted our attention away from the conflict in Ukraine, away from the risk that Russia poses to the global economy. Do we need to start rethinking what we are looking at here and refocus on the risks that it poses? Thank you for having me. Uh, In terms of uh, oil, uh, we need to keep our strategic petroleum reserves uh, as full as possible. So... (laughs) <laughs> the old wisdom of buying on dips. Every time it dips, you fill your petroleum reserve. U.S. has about 90 days to go. Uh, other countries have less. Uh, I think Europe maybe have a month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I also um, calculate the uh, decline of oil prices because, because of uh, recession fears and recession anticipation, both in the United States and Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, we are in the um, Brent 86 range. It will probably trend down into lower 80s or lower. And Russia cutting 500,000 barrels a day hurts Russia more Mm -hmm. than it hurts us. Because uh, oil is a global commodity. It can be shipped anywhere in the world. And uh, Russian uh, budget is already running at a deficit. That's serious. Okay, so so let's just unpack all that for a second. First of all, um, Russia coming out and saying they're going to cut production by 500,000 barrels of oil a day. Do we think that's a true, true production cut? And what's the why? It's a terrific question. The why is perception management. We uh, are uh, installing this um, price ceiling uh, for sale of the Russian oil. Uh, and the Russians are saying we're going to retaliate. This is supposed to be a retaliation. On the other hand, 500,000 barrels can easily uh, be filled from the Middle East, from Algeria and Nigeria. Venezuela is anxious to sell more. So it depends. Are we talking about the Urals brand, the Russian-specific brand, or are we take it, talking Uh, taking a broader view of the global oil market in general. I am not very excited about 500,000 barrels a day. Uh, And again, Russia is hurting itself more than it's hurting us. In terms of those cuts, though, would those cuts have come anyway? OPEC, OPEC Plus don't seem particularly surprised by this. There's no reaction to it. Was this already on the table? As I said at the beginning, this is just a repackaging exercise from cuts that would have already come. Uh, quite possible. Uh, and I would add that there's always, when, when you're in a sanctions regime, we remember it from Iran, from Iraq, there's always people breaking sanctions and selling, uh, so to speak, from the back door. So both the Russians and others are going to violate as long as um, the price is right, as long as they're willing uh, to sell at a discount. And the Russians, we know, are selling to India, to China, mm-hmm. to others. It's 30% discount. So, again, they're hurting themselves more. They're running $3 billion deficit in January alone. But, but, but to that point, I mean, I was mentioning this earlier. 
at some point, the actual sanctions are going to hurt Russia in that they can't get the technology. They can't get the stuff that they actually need to produce more oil. Also, if they're spending so much money on the war, at some point, some of these oil companies and oil wells are going to become uneconomic. So I'm kind of wondering how much of it was wrapped into that scenario versus a true punishment. Indeed, um, the Russians uh, are being hit with uh, sanctions, not just people refusing to buy their oil, but people hurting their insurance, their transportation, um, their technology, as you mentioned. And yes, uh, sanctions are a long-term weapon. It's not from today to tomorrow. Uh, If the Russians do not change their behavior in Ukraine, which is absolutely horrendous, they are going to suffer their population going to suffer. And sooner or later, there will be questions about the role of Vladimir Putin and his decision-making on uh, expanding this war in Ukraine, denying Russia hundreds of billions of dollars worth of markets every year in uh, Europe for Russian uh, hydrocarbons, coal, um, fertilizer, you name it, and denying long-term perspective for the Russian high-tech because they're not going to get those chips, the, those uh, you know modern software, uh, the management uh, expertise. They're hurting themselves tremendously in the long term. Dr. Cohen, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. We really greatly appreciate it. Dr. Ariel Cohen, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council Eurasia Centre, talking about what's happening with Russia. And Alex, you've got to assume that if we do see um, further aggression from Russia, and that's what's anticipated, the, the, the sanctions program is only going to tighten further from here. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, 100%. But, uh, but I also think that it, if there was something really dramatic happening, like OPEC Plus would step in. So that's why, to me, this is a bit of a snoozer. But um, I think that once we get the full impact of, say, the product flows, because that can be quite disruptive, it's not as easily swapped out as, say, oil is, that's, I think, where the market's going to get weirdly distorted. Like, everything's going to move. Everything's going to ship. But at what price is yeah. it going to ship at? And what are the extra costs if you're no longer moving it economically through a pipeline, but now you got to put it on a tanker and go all the way around uh, another country. That's a bit trickier. Anyway, I could talk for a while, but I'll spare a guy. <laughs> all right, coming up, we're going to talk about potential shift over at the BOJ coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over uh, in London. So markets kind of waffling around a little bit. Treasury is looking for the worst week in 2023. Um, you got the a 10-year yield kind of pushing that 100-day moving average. Part of the confusion was set off by uh, the University of Michigan sentiment, which we will get to in a moment. Um, came in better than estimated. Current conditions strong, expectations a little bit weaker, and that was causing kind of a push and pull uh, on the markets as well. Still digesting earnings. Lyft just terrible. Nothing good to say about that. I mean, it's down like 36% analyst after analyst uh, cutting its price target uh, and its rating on the stock, um, and that really feeding through as well to certain equity markets. Um, That's a quick snapshot. It's really going to be all about CPI next Tuesday. Let's get some more news here. Here's Steve Rappaport. Good evening, Alex. The UK narrowly missed a recession last year after cost of living increases and industrial strikes crippled the economy in December. The Office for National Statistics says gross domestic product was unchanged in the fourth quarter, following a revised two-tenths percent decline in the previous three months. Output in December alone fell half of one percent. GDP figures are subject to revisions, though, leaving open the possibility that Britain was indeed in a recession. 
Speaking of those strikes, the UK's Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers have rejected settlement offers from network rail and train operating companies. The union in an emailed statement says the proposals do not meet members' expectations on pay, job security, or working conditions. Earlier this week, firefighters ended their threat to strike after receiving offers for better pay. And a mobile phone firm learns a hairy lesson. A former sales director at Leeds-based Tango Networks won an unfair dismissal claim involving allegations of discrimination and harassment after his boss said he didn't want middle-aged bald men on his team. A UK employment tribunal concluded Mark Jones was wrongfully fired and awarded him more than £71,000 in damages. Alex, back to you. Rappaport uh, joining us there. Okay, let's get uh, to the other main story of the day. Very much a surprise. Apparently, Japanese Prime Minister uh, has chosen an individual for the top job at the Bank of Japan. His name is Kazuo Udea. Um, Uida. Excuse me. It blindsided markets. No one was really expecting that. Everyone was expecting Kuroda's deputy to take the helm, which would have continued this dovish, uh, dovish bent. Now, Kazuo Udea is really considered uh, more of a middle-of-the-road kind of guy. Um, dollar yen, no surprise. Uh, dollar yen tanked like a stone. Now we're sort of off the lows of the session, so the yen losing a little bit of the upside that it had seen before. So there's really only one person to go to when something like this happens, and that's Kathleen Hayes. She joins us now on the phone. She also is joining us on her day off, which we very much appreciate. Um, Kathleen, what was your initial thought when the headline crossed yesterday? Shock. Complete and total shock. Wow. If this is the, the style that we're going to get from uh, Fumio Kishida, the prime minister, when it comes to selecting BOJ officials, although this won't happen again for their five years, uh, this is really wild because this is someone, I think, unless you were, you are very deeply enmeshed in uh, the uh, academic monetary policy world of Japan, uh, unless you've been watching these uh people for a long time. I mean, over decades, who would have thought of this? Uh, I haven't seen a single story from all the top uh, Japanese news sources, including Bloomberg, which I put right at the top, that even mentioned this man's name. He uh, he has been, I'm actually just kind of going over all the, the stories about him again, but uh, someone from academia, uh, he was a BOJ board member from 1998 to 2005, and during that time, he uh, voted against interest rate hikes August 2000, uh, voted in favor of launching quantitative easing. That was the first, you know, some of the first quantitative easing in the world in March 2001. So uh, he's, he's, he's obviously someone who's been, I, I think you said it very well, uh, uh, looks like probably kind of a centrist, but I'm, I'm still, I'm, <laughs> it's, it's still crazy. Okay, Kathleen. Uh- Good morning, Sky. Good afternoon, Sky. Thank you for joining us as well. Let me have my thanks to Alex's. So Ueda was was a massive surprise. Amaia was the name that everybody was talking about. Why did he not want the job? Amamiya, I can't imagine that he didn't want the job, quite frankly. Mm. Um, so what do you think happened some, there? What happened? Obvi- obviously, we, we don't know yet. Uh, this is still fairly, very new. Uh, and I'm sure everyone's scrambling to figure this out. Uh it, it, there's there's a couple of tricky things here. Uh, p- perhaps to a certain extent, this is a way of making a break with Governor Kuroda in a very definitive way. Uh, Deputy Governor Amamiya had uh, was the leading contender for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's 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 been there for his, he's a lifer, right? Everybody heard, referred to him as Mr. Boj. He first joined the Bank of Japan in 1979, um, held many different jobs, became the Deputy Governor about five years ago, and 
also importantly, he was the architect of negative interest rates. He was the architect for Corona as of yield curve control uh, and yield curve control in particular now is a policy everyone's looking at again because you have to buy tons of bonds to keep the, the tenure JGB, Japanese government bond, tethered. Uh, you know, at, now it's at either side of zero uh, by Point five, uh, and, and there's been a lot of questions what they're going to do about that. That question still remains, and the question is how this person is going to deal with it. But mm-hmm. I can't. I would be shocked if Mom, Mama Mia did not want the job. He just didn't get it. So let me take the other side for a second. Um, wh- what what is there to say that we actually still need some kind of loose policy for longer? That that two percent plus inflation world isn't sustainable without it. What's the school of thought out there that still believes it? We all keep talking about how they can't afford it, they can't do it, they got to shift it. What if they can't? Well, here's the big question at the currently at the Bank of Japan, and I would say uh, many uh, economists in and outside of Japan that yes, their inflation rate right now, even their core, which is the uh, CPI, consumer prices minus fresh food, is up around four percent. That's double the two percent, but it's due largely, they would say, not to demand push, but co- uh, demand pull, I should say, but cost push. And so, if commodity prices come down and keep coming down, then you don't stay at two percent. Furthermore, wage increases. That's been the biggest stickler for the Japanese for years. We're right we're in the middle now. We're getting into the middle of the spring wage negotiations. Shunto. And people are more optimistic that you could get maybe on average something above 2.5%, maybe even 3%. It's still a big if. If you don't have sustained wage increases, uh, the, uh, the latest rate wages were pretty strong, but it was a lot of bonuses that were given last year because of inflation. So it's just a, a feeling that you're not going to stay there. And if you don't, you have to maintain easing. As we attempt the exit from yield curve control, does the Bank of Japan need a weaker yen as a kind of umbrella while it while it navigates that exit? A lot of a lot of people in the FX market are slightly sort of confounded by today's today's moves. Yeah, well, the question of the yen is a good one. To me, I I I just go more to the to the bond market and uh the, the the worry is there's a couple that if you start exiting yield curve control and you widen the bands, uh, the yields are going to shoot up, right? Uh, and uh, and and then further step would be that then all the Japanese investors who hold lots of global bonds, right, certainly in the U.S., uh, will start selling them and buying JGBs. That could cause a lot of turmoil there. Uh, and I think the other side of it is the government debt. They've got a very large deficit in Japan. They are, uh, they're, they've committed now to defense spending. They're going to have a big chunk of money to spend there. Very important for Japan geopolitically on so many levels. So are you ready to let your government bond yields rise and have to pay higher financing costs? It's a very complicated picture because you don't just have the economic and wage and inflation side. You have that side, too. Kathleen, a massive thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you so much. Really useful to get your analysis. Uh, your, your expert knowledge around this area, really pivotal on a day like today. Bloomberg's Kathleen Hayes joining us on her day off. Uh, okay, up next, we're going to get back to the U.S. data, University of Michigan data uh, dropping onto the screens at 10 a.m. Eastern time a little bit earlier on. A little surprise, a little bit of strength creeping into that data series. Uh, we're going to talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
Good evening. evening. Listen to the cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Johnson is over in London. Okay, we've been talking about it. The UMish numbers uh, came in better than estimated. The expectations, though, not so great. Um, Guy and I get the pleasure of getting the direct analysis from Joanne Shu, University of Michigan Surveys of Consumer Director, on the numbers. Um, we started off talking about that spread between conditions and expectations. I would say that given how low the records low that we saw last year, um, anything that's not a drop is relatively good news. Um, so overall, the index just edged up a little bit, essentially unchanged. Um, but what we saw was that current conditions have improved. Consumers feel a little bit better about their current situations. Um, I think it's a continuation of the easing of inflation um, and and some of the news in, in the economy that's uh, making them feel a little bit better about the current situation. Is this a trend you expect to continue? We are debating at the moment a great deal whether or not we're going to have a soft landing. The labour market continues to hold up. What do you think the trend here is? If you pull the data together in its totality, did the consumers get freaked out, have the fear about what was going to be happening with the labour market, saw the Fed raising rates, saw inflation and got spooked? Are we just kind of unwinding that? Um, it's possible, but I would say that in general, consumers are reacting to the reality around them and aren't necessarily reacting to Fed policy. So one thing that I think is really supporting consumer sentiment are the, is the strong labor market as well as strong incomes. Um, one of the reasons people felt better this month is that you know they're reporting stronger incomes than they did in January. The thing to note, though, is that a lot of people are expecting the labor market to deteriorate um, in the year ahead. I believe it's about 40, 40 plus percent of consumers believe unemployment is going to worsen, um, and that's up from 25% a year ago. Uh, I, I do want to get on that, uh, Joanne, but I just wanted to articulate the chart that we were just looking at, um, U.S. investors jumping back into stocks. Um, this kind of echoes a lot of the data that we've seen from like a J.P. Morgan that says retail's coming back um, and trading like we haven't seen since uh, the meme craze uh, a couple years ago. Are you noticing a lot of that? And, and what does that tell us? What we are seeing is that uh, consumers that have um, the largest stock holdings um, had really large improvements in their sentiment over over the last month. And um, given the rising asset values that has supported consumer sentiment, I do expect some consumers to be more interested um, and less hesitant about participating. In terms of what people are seeing in the labor market, I just want to sort of dig into that because you, you have a whole load of kind of um, uh, data on this. Unemployment over the next 12 months. In terms of where we sit with that right now, is that number moving significantly, Joanne? Where do we expect that number to be going given the strength in the labor market, the shockingly strong labor market that we currently have? So I think consumers are understand that we are at record lows for unemployment rates and there's really nowhere to go but up. And the question is how much. So as long as consumers still believe that their incomes are going to remain strong, I think that will continue to lift consumer sentiment and their willingness to spend. But again, um, consumers are very much bracing for a downturn, bracing for, um, for, for more unemployment. And so they are going to be continuing to be cautious with their spending mm -hmm. um, in spite of the fact of the easing inflation. Joanne Shu, talking to Alex and I a little bit earlier on. Alex, I, this is going to be fascinating to see how consumers react. So the inflation mm -hmm. number picked up as well. That's to do with gasoline prices, which are starting to turn a little bit more positive. You've also then got the, uh, the issue of what's happening in the labour market, which, which is definitely sort of holding up. I, I think the consumer at the moment... I, I, so, so I think the consumer in the States was really shocked what happened sort of late last year into this year and is now feeling a lot calmer and is now looking at a reality that could potentially be a lot better for them. 
in terms of the employment picture. And that seems to hold the key to all of this. Well, I also wonder, too, if, if you're current, and this echoes what we saw in the UK, you're worried, but you're actually okay now. But you're worried, yeah. but you're okay now. So you've raised this question quite a bit. If we get to the point where you're worried, but everything's actually okay, do you go out and spend more money? Does that mean more growth but more inflation and that central banks have to go harder? That part gets really confusing to so me think, when you have the spread. So I think initially you, you don't spend money because you're freaked out. But as you start to become sort of calmer about the situation, then yeah, potentially you do. And, and I that's going to be a weird headwind. And I think, yeah, precisely. And weirdly, I think that's that's what we're seeing. I think we're going to see a whole load of retail data mm-hmm. next week, which may give us a clue as to what is happening here. Talking of spending money, it is Super nice. Bowl weekend in the United States. We're going to talk about it next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Let's talk about the big sporting event that is going to take place this weekend. The NFL Super Bowl kicking off Sunday. But here in the U- for us here in the UK, it's going to be a little late. It's going to be played uh, at, State Farm Stadium, at State Farm Stadium in Arizona. You're going to see uh, the Philadelphia Eagles facing off against the Kansas City Chiefs. I think about 60,000 people uh, are, are going to be watching it live. Obviously, millions are going to be tuning in around the world to watch it. Now, increasingly, this is an event that is dominated by sports betting. Sports betting is becoming more and more legal in the United States. There are some key states that still have not legalized it. States like California, like Florida, like Texas, but more and more states are doing so. And as a result of which, sports betting is becoming a bigger and bigger part uh, of the landscape. One of the biggest companies is a company called FanDuel. It's owned by Flutter uh, out of Ireland. Uh, and its CEO uh, is Amy Howe. She caught up with Alex and I a little bit earlier on to talk about how it's going into the game. Oh, it's going to be a huge day. Uh, so it, we are set for this to be a record day for FanDuel. We're, uh, we're projecting 17 million bets on the platform, which is more than double what we would have seen last year. There's three new states online this year. Um, but it's also it's our biggest acquisition moment of the year. We'll probably bring half a million new users onto the platform leading up to and on the day of. And it's a great opportunity. They get to you know bet on hundreds of different player props. So it's um, it's going to be an exciting day for fans. Amy, uh, good morning. It's Guy. Is it going to be profitable for you? Is it going to be a good day for you? How does this stack up in terms of the bottom line? Oh, listen, it's going to be a big day. And, you know, it all depends on the outcome of the game. I think the most important thing is consumers bet based on the narrative that they want to see. And I think, you know, what you're seeing is right now the money is definitely flowing to the Philadelphia Eagles. So apologies if you're a Chiefs fan. Um, but what's <laughs> what's most exciting is the player props, right? 90% of our bets will contain at least one player prop. Uh, we think 35-40% of our bets will be a same-game parlay. And so that's exciting, right? You can you can bet on the fact that the Kelsey brothers will both score a touchdown, uh, you know, the correct score. Every, there's 30,000 bets on the Eagles beating the Chiefs 37-34. So there's just so many different mm-hmm. bets you can you can choose from. And if uh, hopefully it's a consumer-friendly day, but we'll Amy, see. Amy, how big are those parlay bets going to be? Um, in terms of the volume and also the profitability then for you guys? Um, they're huge. I mean, listen, 
same game parlay has been a big advantage for FanDuel. We're owned by our, our parent company, Flutter Entertainment. And this is a product that we brought over from Australia and other parts of the world. We were the first to market. And so for us, it's a much higher percentage of our overall mix. It's driven a big structural margin advantage for us. Um, but it's also why I think sports betting has really taken off. It's, you know, when you're invested in a player or a certain parlay, uh, it makes the game that much more exciting, even if the game's a blowout. Amy, you mentioned a moment ago that this is going to be a big day for you in terms of customer acquisition. What is the cost of acquisition for those customers? I mean, listen, uh, what, one of the things that's really driven FanDuel's success is we've been way more efficient in how we drive customers to the platform, right? We have a massive scale advantage in the U.S. where we have about a 45% share of the market, but we've, we've been able to be about 25% more efficient in bringing customers onto the platform. You know, a big part of that has been the head start we had with our fantasy sports business, but we've also had a level of discipline. So, you know, your acquisition costs are obviously going to vary depending on the events, and mm -hmm. this is an important event. This is an important event for us. Uh, are you still sticking to profitability by the end of this year? Could it be sooner, later? What are the factors? Yeah, we feel very confident about our path to profitability for 2023. We were the first operator, uh, at least U.S. operator, to be profitable in Q2 of this year. Fundamentals of our business are looking very strong, and so we remain very confident about full-year profitability this year. Amy, in terms of what these numbers are going to look like next year, how different could they be if we see one of the big states, Texas, California, Florida, et cetera, giving the green light? That's a great question. You know, listen, in the long run, we believe there's, you know, a $40 billion TAM out there, right, in both sports betting and iGaming. Exactly what happens next year is always very difficult to predict. You know, Massachusetts will come online likely Q2 this year. Um, and, you know, we're still doing a lot of hard work to legalize the next set of states. Um, but I think in the long run, right, as you, as you project out to, you know, maturity 23, this is going to be a, a huge market, right? It's inconceivable to think that some of the big states ultimately won't get there. So, Amy, does, does a bigger pie, like a bigger gambling pie, automatically mean more profitability to you or just more activity? Listen, um, the profitability is just a, is really, you know, it's an outcome of what happens in the game, but more importantly, it's a function of how we drive the business. And I think that one of our cornerstones of success has been much more efficient acquisition, but we've also managed our cost base incredibly well as we've grown. So you're seeing that operating leverage, which is why, you know, we're going to be one of the first operators to be profitable uh, in 2023. So, Amy, as we wrap this up, do you think the punters are right? Do you think they've got this one right? The money flow is moving in one direction. Is it the right direction? Well, it's, it's a great question. Um, yes, the money flow is definitely going towards the Eagles. I think they got this one right. I'm sorry for the Chiefs fans, um, but <laughs> I think they probably got this one right. That was Amy Howe, a uh, FanDuel CEO. It was a fun interview, but it, it is an interesting business model because the more that sports gambling gets legalized here in the U.S., the more they have to spend on, say, costs and advertisements, but then yep. the more people that wind up gambling, the more profitable it is for them. It's, it's, it's a tricky time, it feels, for these guys. It is. And also, I think you've got to see this against the backdrop of ultimately what the regulatory landscape is going to look like. The UK was early out of the gate in terms of sports betting, mm -hmm. and there have been a lot of societal lessons that have had to be learned in terms of managing this, in terms of supporting this. So I think that's a factor that that has kind of yet to fully be fully be taken on board in the United States. Yes, this is a huge revenue generator. Yes, 
you can see why states are doing this, given the, their financial backdrop. But there is going to be a cost. Yeah, there is. Um, well, this is it. You're going on vacation next week, I and am. I'm going to be on vacation the following week. We're both going. Where are you going? You're going to Italy as well, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to Florence, and you're going to go skiing. Okay, uh, yeah. we'll, be, we'll literally be planes passing in the night. Absolutely. I Have a wonderful you, time. I, I will see you in two weeks. Thank you very much indeed. I understand it's going to be quite sunny, which is good. Not too sunny, I hope. But uh, yeah, thank you very much indeed. Next week's going to be quite exciting. US CPI. Woohoo! I'll be here for that. So stay with us for that. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll catch you back up on Monday. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg.